Amen. Well, good morning again. We are absolutely glad that you are here. Uh, this morning, we are going to be starting a brand new series of sermons, um, in which this morning we're going to be all throughout the book of Proverbs. And the series of sermons is called Home for the Holidays. Home for the Holidays. And we are going to be looking at postures, postures of our hearts and postures of our lives and postures maybe sometimes of our lips in some of these sermons as to how these things help us or hurt us in magnifying Christ. Uh, in this holiday season, because here's the deal. Many of us, uh, myself included, claim to be Christians. We believe these things to be true, that Christ died for my sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. We believe these things to be true. And then sometimes I open up my mouth and the tone of my words doesn't always match the beliefs in my heart. Maybe you've been there. You don't have to confess it, uh, but I bet you have. Have, right? Many of us find that sometimes our lives and our attitudes and our actions don't match up with the gospel that we believe. Sometimes we don't walk the talk the way we know uh, we ought to. And, and, and so we want to look this morning at postures that will help, postures that will help us magnify Christ this holiday season. So let me begin with a question. And it's one that perhaps you haven't considered yet. How is your heart postured? How, this morning, as you sit here, how is your heart postured? Is it postured in a good direction? Are you pleased with the way things are going? Or is your heart postured in a way that you find yourself, you want some things to change? We believe that the gospel is true, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that, that he was buried and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. We believe that if you died with Christ, you will be raised with Christ. We believe that he changes hearts. In my devotional time this morning, I was reading a, a daily devotion that talked about the fact that as Christians, we believe that people can change. We believe that people can change, that the hard-hearted can become soft-hearted, that those of us with short tempers can learn how to become and through grace become more, um, more long-suffering towards those that have been long-suffering with us. We believe that you can change. I was in a meeting not long ago with a, a group of ministry leaders from around our state, and somebody made the, the comment about the importance of character and leadership. And yes, character uh, is important in leadership, but somebody uh, kind of threw in the comment, well, you just can't learn character. And because I'm slow, it took me a couple days, and a couple days later, I was kind of reminiscing on the thinking about the meeting, and I thought, wait a minute, I don't believe that at all. I, I totally disagree with that. I believe absolutely that those of us who we were before we met Christ can be changed, that we can learn character, that we can develop some of these things. And so I want to talk to you this morning about how the gospel impacts our posture, how it impacts specifically our relationships in and around our families. Because here's the deal. The holidays are here, whether or not you're listening to Christmas music or not yet right? Doesn't matter. They're here. Whether or not you think Die Hard is a Christmas movie, right? Doesn't matter. They're here. Whether or not how you feel about the whole, uh, the whole conversation, should you listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving or not? 
And should you listen to that song last Christmas at all? And the answer is no, right? But, you know, it doesn't matter how you feel about those things. The holidays are here. And so this morning, we're going to talk about how to save the holidays from yourself. How do you save the holidays from yourself? That's the question that we're asking this morning. Okay, now holidays are uh, when we get together with bad people to try to celebrate good news. That's the best definition of a holiday I can come up with, right? And if you're like, I don't think that's a good definition, then maybe you're the bad people that the rest of your family members are saying, oh, we gotta get together with them, right? Holidays are when we get together with other people and we try to celebrate this good news, but somebody ends up arguing about Die Hard. Somebody ends up arguing about uh, Christmas uh, music. Somebody ends up arguing about this, that, or the other. It happens, right? Even in the most perfect of families, those who would rival Norman Rockwell's paintings, there is conflict and tension. Now, some of it is accidental. We stumble upon it. I'm sorry, how was I supposed to know that you got fired? again, right? I'll stop asking about your job. I'm sorry, I didn't know that Christmas boyfriend wasn't gonna be the same as Thanksgiving boyfriend. My bad, sorry. Uh, or, or someone, right, asks the woman who is not pregnant. It never goes well. Some of the conflict we experience in the holiday season is accidental, it's accidental. Sometimes, though, it's on purpose. I told you not to marry that boy. I told you that relationship wasn't going to work out. When's he going to get a real job? Why can't you keep those kids in line? Purposefully or accidentally, there is conflict in the home. There is conflict around the home. There is conflict in the season. And so applying the gospel to our family relationships can be one of the hardest things you'll ever do. And one of the most important things you ever do. And failing to do so can bring about some of the worst of consequences. Now, we're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs this morning. The book of Proverbs is an Old Testament book in which uh, King Solomon and a number of others uh, bring together a list of what we call wise sayings. And throughout the book of Proverbs, we find two characters are contrasted. The wise man who walks according to wisdom and a character called the fool. Right Now, chances are you're going to find yourself resonating with both of them, hopefully more wise than the fool, but chances are if you're anything like me and you are, you know you are the fool. All right? But we find these two characters contrasted with each other. And you can imagine what it would look like if they showed up to your family, family gathering this, this holiday season. You can imagine what it would look like as you read the book of Proverbs. You can imagine what it would look like if the wise person walked in, how they would conduct themselves, what they would say when they noticed that the green beans were burnt or whether they would say anything at all, right? How they would conduct themselves when somebody started talking about politics and it became very clear that not everybody was on the same page in your family, just like every other family, right? You can see how they would uh, interact, how the wise person would interact, and you can imagine how the fool would interact. The fool would ruin the holidays. In fact, just in case you were wondering, I want to go ahead and teach you very quickly as we look at the Proverbs, uh, five key principles on how to ruin the holidays, okay? You probably didn't expect to get this this morning, but this is what the fool would say to you were he to stand here today and say, I want to teach you how to ruin the holidays. Here it goes. You ready? Number one, stir up the division. 
Stir up the division. When you get together for the Thanksgiving table, uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and you know that um, uh, Aunt Susie is a Republican and Uncle Bernie is, well, um, not a Republican, right? You, you, you can imagine. Um, and you say, hey, I got an idea. Uh, who are you going to vote for? Right? And you're just going to throw it out. You're like, Jeff, wait a minute. Stir up the division. That, like, which one? It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. The fool would say, pick one. In fact, pick five. Pick five. The, the more, the better, right? And you say, oh, all right, well, we talked about politics. Let's talk about religion, right? You stir that in there. And so you, the fool would say, you want to ruin the holidays? Stir up the division. You want to ruin the holidays? Withhold honor. Don't treat anybody kindly. They don't matter. They have no dignity. They, they don't know what they're talking about. They're all fools. The rest of them, you're the only wise one at the table, right? The only sophisticated one. The fool would say, don't give them any honor. Withhold it. The fool would say, make it all about you. Make it all about you. Oh, that's nice. You got a new job. Well, let me tell you about my old job, right? Uh, that's nice. You're dating somebody. Let me tell you. All of a sudden, um, there's one comedian. He talks about the me monster, right? It's me, 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 my, 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 me, my, my. I just want to talk about me, my. You know, all of a sudden, the fool would say, make it all about you. The fool would say, settle in your immaturity. Refuse to grow up. Refuse to grow up, refuse to grow in wisdom. And the fool would say, forget about heaven. This is all you've got. So the question that we're asking this morning is, is this you? Or has it been you so far? Maybe accidentally, maybe not on purpose, but have you played the fool? As we survey the book of Proverbs this morning, we're gonna be asking the question, what if? What if you held the posture, not of stirring up division, but of making peace? What if you held the posture not of withholding honor, but of giving honor, generously giving honor? What if you held the posture not of making it all about you, but as Philippians 2 is going to tell us, to consider others more significant than yourselves? What if you didn't settle in your immaturity, but grew? What if you didn't forget heaven, but you remembered it and you lived with heaven stamped upon your brow? Christian, the question that we're asking is this, is the gospel the lens through which you view your family? Your primary job as a Christian is to apply the gospel to yourself and display it to others. The trouble comes when we apply the law to others but grace to ourselves. So this morning, we're going to look briefly at five gospel-produced gifts that Christians ought to bring to the table, especially where there is conflict, how to save the holidays from yourself. Now, if you are a Christian, I want you to know I'm glad you're here. And if you are not a Christian, I want you to know I'm glad you're here too. If you're not a Christian, there are three things I want to say to you very quickly before we get into our text this morning. Number one, number one, try these out. Some of these postures, you're going to find that if you're not a Christian, you can, you can try them out. Now, I think you'll find yourself lacking, but take them for a test drive. Number two, you can measure the Christians that you know by them. You totally have my authority, which means nothing in your family, to judge the Christians you know uh, by what you hear this morning. Now, disclaimer, if you choose to go to the Thanksgiving dinner table and you choose to apply this judgment to the Christians that you know, I would ask simply that you use the filters that God has given you, those lips and your tongue and your teeth to keep in uh, check that criminal, right? Your tongue, your mouth. Um, before you say, well, Jeff Mingy said at your Thanksgiving dinner table, please don't do that, all right? And number three is, friends, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The goal of this sermon is not to tell you to do better. The goal of this sermon is not to, to, to put more weight on you. The goal of this sermon is to get you to look to Christ, 
Now, I believe in giving credit where credit is due. So um, if you quote somebody and you've done the work to remember the name of that person, you ought to name them. Now, if you can't remember who said it, you just pretend like you made it up because nobody knows the difference. But where you can, give credit. So much of this message was influenced by a guy named Russell Moore who helps us think well about applying the gospel to ourselves. So let's jump in. Five gospel-produced characteristics that Christians ought to bring to the table this holiday season. The first is this, peace. Christian, you ought to bring peace this Christmas, this holiday season. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. I don't much like that verse, right? Because I find in myself plenty of fuel for the fire that turns in to that hot-tempered man. And you've been there where your temper rose and all of a sudden it's like everybody was fighting. You weren't fighting a minute ago, but because you responded with anger, now everybody's fighting. We see that. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Some of you just found your family verse right? You're like, we are putting that on the living room wall. That's going up. Y'all going to remember that one this holiday season, right? We see it in our families. We see it in our hearts. Zechariah said of Jesus when he was presented at the temple that he would guide our feet into the way of peace. Luke 17, Acts chapter 10, the message that they preach is referred to as the good news that brings peace among the fruits of the spirit that are listed in Galatians 5. What do we find? Peace. And in Hebrews 12, 14, the author gives us the difficult call to strive for peace with everyone. Really? Everyone? Yes. The Greek word there means everyone, right? No, but what about? You are not just to, you're to be striving uh, for peace. You're, or excuse me, you're a Christian. Uh, there is no one with whom you are not to be striving for peace, not, not just hoping for peace, not even just praying for peace. You're to be striving for peace, working for it, actively pursuing it. So when you walk into a room, are you coming as an advocate of peace or are you on the hunt for an argument, right? We all know somebody who seems to live with crosshairs, in their vision. It's like they're always finger on the trigger, ready to pull. They're just looking for an argument. They just want you to line up so that they can take their shot. But Christian, you are to be an agent of peace. Now, some Christians believe that the gospel to be true. Now, all Christians believe the gospel to be true. But some understand truth as though it must be said with gritted teeth and not a smile. I believe in truth, they say, right? And that truth turns into a club or a hammer with which they swing at everybody and everything. It's been said that when you give a man a hammer, everything becomes a nail, right? In the same way, some people understand the gospel to be a hammer, and they're just walking around saying, who's going to be the nail today? Who's going to be the, uh, on the other side of my fury and my wrath and my argument today? Friends, the gospel is true. It is absolutely, unashamedly, objectively true. And it's good. It's good. This is what the gospel, by which you have peace with God, produces in you. You become an agent of peace. Think about it. 
If Jesus Christ, crucified for your sins, was enough to satisfy the wrath of God and establish peace between you and God, don't you think it ought to be enough to satisfy your wrath and establish peace between you and your cousin? Now, some might say, well, didn't Jesus say that he came not to bring peace but a sword? Yes, and he's already done that, and he doesn't need you to do it for him. We are called to contend for the truth, but in the same book, we are called not to be contentious. So be zealous for the truth and be obedient to the call to strive for peace with everyone. Is that you? Are you bringing peace to the table? Imagine what it would look like for you this holiday season to be an agent, not of stirring up division, but of peace. Secondly, we ought to bring honor to the table. The second attitude that the Christian should bring is that of honor. Now, the biblical definition and description of honor literally means to give weight to somebody. Now, you might look around your family table and be like, hold on, man. We don't need to give weight to anybody. We got plenty, right? All right? That's not what he means. Not what he means, right? He means to give credibility, to give dignity, to look at them and say, they matter as much, if not more, than I matter. There are three arenas in which the Bible speaks to the matter of honor. First, we're called to honor God. Secondly, we're called to honor our father and mother, which is explicit in the commands. And thirdly, we are called to honor everyone. The overwhelming thrust of Proverbs is that God's people should be more concerned with giving honor to others them with receiving it from others. Is that you? Is that you? Are you more concerned with giving honor to other people to making sure that they feel honored when they're sitting across the Thanksgiving dinner table from you? That make sure, that making sure that they feel valued, that they feel like they have dignity, that they feel like their opinion matters, that they feel like their suffering is heard, that they feel like, like they have a, a voice at the table. The overwhelming thrust of Proverbs is that when we are walking obediently to the gospel, obediently to God's commands, then we become more concerned with giving honor than receiving it. Our day of honor will come. It'll come when our Father says to us, well done, which means we don't have to chase honor or fight for honor between now and then. I'll be honored one day, finally, right? In the eyes of my Father, I will be honored which means I don't, I don't have to fight or get offended when I'm not honored at, at the Thanksgiving dinner table, right? I don't have to fight or get upset when my voice isn't heard. I don't have to fight or get upset when I feel like I'm being devalued. The overwhelming thrust of Proverbs says, no, I should be more concerned with giving it than with receiving it. Proverbs 29, one's pride, the opposite of honor, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. It's almost as though Proverbs says, which do you want? Do you want to be honored now in the eyes of your friends and family members, or do you want to be honored then in the eyes of God? The book of Proverbs says you can fight for your honor now. You can argue that, that your vote is the right way to vote, that your way of thinking is the right way of thinking, that, that your opinion is the right opinion, or, or you can lay down that right and, and know that being lowly in spirit now, know that one day you will obtain honor. Pride demands that you honor me and that you do so now. That is antithetical to the book of Proverbs and the gospel as a whole, right? In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter calls us to honor everyone. He says, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. 
In other words, Peter says there are no exceptions. In college, we used to talk about but whatabouts, right? In any conversation, there are always but whatabouts. In other words, there are people or excuses that don't make it so that we don't apply. So in other words, when the Bible says honor everyone, we'll say, but what about Uncle Bobby? I mean, come on. You know Uncle Bobby. He doesn't deserve any honor. He doesn't deserve, I mean, come on, really? You want us to, but what about, and, and the Bible says, no, but what about? No, but what about? You, Christian, are to be honoring towards everyone. You're to be honoring towards everyone. Now, this doesn't mean that we're supposed to make people out to be something they're not. In showing honor, we don't turn our enemies into our heroes, right? Christian, you can honor a person with whom you deeply uh, uh, disagree, even on ultimate issues, Remember what Peter said, 1 Peter 2, honor the emperor. In all likelihood, Peter would have disagreed with the emperor on politics, ethics, religious liberty, the pro-life debate, and whether or not Die Hard was a Christmas movie, just to throw that in there, right? And yet, what does he do? He calls his readers to honor the emperor. The gospel frees you to honor those with whom you disagree, right? To be agents of peace, striving for peace with everyone, This isn't easy. Dr. Moore writes in his article, pray for God to show you the ways those in your life are worthy of honor and teach your children to follow you in showing respect and gratitude. Parents, parents, imagine if your kids showed the same amount of honor to those that they disagree with as you show to those you disagree with. Imagine Imagine if if their definition and and, and obedience to honor looked like yours. For some of us, that causes us to look down and shuffle our feet and say, do as I say, not as I do, right? But when we're called to be obedient here, when you leave the Christmas party, are the people you interacted with going to feel honored? Are they going to feel dishonored or are they gonna feel simply overlooked? Honor everyone. The third characteristic is humility. The third characteristic is humility, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Humility is closely tied to honor. It's the root of honor. Honor is the outward expression of inward humility. It's what Paul calls in Philippians 2, considering others more significant than yourselves. Listen to how Paul says this, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Around our network of churches, uh, sometimes we'll use the phrase, rock in Philippians 2 to describe this kind of attitude. Christian, are you rocking Philippians 2? Are you considering others more significant than yourselves? In my premarital counseling, this is one of the segments we'll talk about this verse, and this is the best piece of marital advice that I've got, is to consider the other person more significant than yourself. That's it. That's it. I mean, I really, I could just sum up my premarital counseling with that phrase. Not really, but, right? 
This is what we're called to do. We're called to consider others more significant than ourselves. Who do you talk more about? Who are you asking more about? Are you shaping the conversation, the experience, the time more to your interests, or are you seeking their interests? If you want to share the gospel with a family member this season, you'll get a lot further with humility, right? Your humility or the absence of it will often serve as a fork in the road as to whether or not people will really hear whatever it is you have to say. <coughs> Excuse me. If you walk into the room full of pride, speaking only and always of the best-looking, most intelligent, most important, and most interesting person in the room who just so happens to be you, right? It's always that way now that we mention it. Then you can go ahead and place your bet that nobody's going to care for your advice or your announcement, even if what you have to say is true or is good news. Good news is often unheard because of a prideful news bearer. But on the other hand, if you walk in with humility and consider others more significant than yourselves, if you seek their interests above your own, then they will hear you out and listen to what you have to say. Pursue, friends, humility. The third characteristic is uh, uh, maturity, or fourth, excuse me. It's, it's maturity is, is next, regardless. It's maturity. Proverbs 16, verse 31. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Our culture screams at us, avoid the negative effects of aging, right? For, precisely because our culture is convinced that this world is all that there is. This body is as good as it's going to get. But scripture comforts us. Embrace the reality and the promises of aging. You weren't made for this world. Gray hair is a crown of glory. Nothing else. It means you made it, right? You made it, or at least you made it this far. A buddy of mine, Nathan Cecil, who's a pastor in, um, in Hampton, uh, ran a marathon yesterday. He finished, the, he crossed the finish line. Better him than me, right? But he did it. He did it. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It's gained in a righteous life. When I was a youth pastor, I would sometimes explain to students that the teenage years can often be confusing. They can be hard. A am I a child? Or am I an adult? Am, 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 am I a youngster? Or am I grown up and, 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 and into adulthood? Where, where do I fit in, right? But I would let them know that there is indeed an objective test of adulthood that will let you know whether or not you're really an adult. There is a, uh, it's, it's universal, I believe, right? It's globally probably not recognized, but maybe it should be. It's a test of how to know whether or not you're a kid or an adult. And it is the Thanksgiving dinner table. Right? This is it. This is it. Each year, each year, you walk into Aunt Sharon's house a bit more hopeful. For years, you've been stuck at the kitty table, right next to Cousin Jimmy, who without fail will at some point get a green bean stuck up his nose, and he's going to choke on the mashed potatoes until you, being the only responsible one of the par party and the only one responsible one at the table, you apply the Heimlich while the others giggle until the cranberry juice just goes everywhere. Right? You've been at the kiddie table, but you've grown this year, right? You're in middle school now. This is your year, right? You're going to get a seat at the adult table. You finally reached maturity, right? There is a test. I told you. And so you're laughing because you know it's true. Some of you are still at the kiddie table. Some of you need to go back to the kiddie table. Like, can we retroactively you know, change in the family this year, y'all? Uh, 
Christian, here's the question. Are you coming to the table with maturity? It's not gained overnight. Have you put in the work to grow towards maturity? 1 Corinthians 14, Paul speaks to our intellectual maturity as Christians when he writes, in your thinking, be mature. Be mature. It is a sin to be a stupid Christian, at least for a long season of time, right? That doesn't mean you have to read all the books. That doesn't mean you have to like reading. That doesn't mean you have to uh, be the most intellectual person in the room, but it means you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your noggin, right? You're to be growing. You're to be growing in maturity, right? So are you growing? Have you put in the work to grow? Have you read your Bible? Have you opened up your Bible? We'll never be spiritually mature if because of our failure to read our Bibles, we remain intellectually ignorant. Many young people get frustrated with their family at the holiday season because they feel like they're treated like little children. The only problem is that for most of the year, that's exactly how they act. And we're the same way. Your maturity will be seen in how you respond to those who disagree with you. Are you being an advocate of peace? Are you honoring everyone? Are you coming with humility? Then, friends, you are on the road to maturity. And maturity matters, especially when you come into a room that seems to be a seedbed for conflict. Many of us have found ourselves in a disagreement with someone who we would refer to as immature. Proverbs speaks to that as well, arguing with a fool. Be it a two-year-old or a 42-year-old, they both exist. So Christian, are you growing in maturity? If you're not sure whether or not you're immature, then perhaps you have your answer, right? But are you, are you ready to make a worthwhile contribution to the conversation? Are you ready to interact in a disagreement with humility and with peace? If not, do, do you have the ability to refrain from sharing your stupidity, right? Often that's maturity. While we could define maturity in a thousand ways for our purposes this morning, let's boil it down to this. If you can't say something nice, help me out. Ah, we're on to something. We're on to something. The Lord has given you two jailers your, your lips and your teeth to keep in check that criminal, your tongue. And yet how often do we open up the gates and let the criminal go free? Say what you want. Say it however you want. It doesn't matter what they think. They're not that important anyway. Friends, maturity is the sum result of what we've talked about so far. Seeking peace, honoring others, being humble in those pursuits. The last characteristic that the Christian brings to the table that we're we're, we will consider this morning in, in the book of Proverbs is this, perspective, perspective. There is a way, Proverbs tells us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Dr. Moore writes in his article, remember that you'll give an account at the resurrection for every idol, that means seemingly tiny, insignificant, unmemorable, thought, word, and deed. At the judgment seat of the Lord Christ, you'll be responsible for living out the gospel in every arena to which the Spirit has led you, including Aunt Flossie's dining room table. Martin Luther said that there are only two days that matter on the Christian's calendar, this day and that day. This day in which we find ourselves sitting next to the other real living step-on-your-toes people, many of whom we call family, and that day in which we will stand before King Jesus and give an account for every careless word that we speak or text or tweet. What if you approach this season and your interactions with your family in light of that great day in that perspective? I think at the heart of, this, uh, heart of all of this conversation is the simple question, uh, this holiday season, are you marveling at the gospel? 
Are you in absolute awe that God would come for you? You. Have you met you? I've met you, right? And God would come for you. Friends, we are, we are the most effective agents of peace with difficult family members when we realize that we have peace with God because of his pursuing us at great cost to himself. We best honor others when we look at them through the lens of the gospel, that they were created in the image of God and they're invited to be in the redemptive work of Jesus. We come to the table with humility precisely because we know that Christ came to the table in humility on our behalf. We come with maturity when we recognize that Christ is king, not me. And let us always live in light of the reality of the coming judgment and the gospel in which we rest. Friends, in the Jewish culture, there's a process of mourning. When a loved one dies at the, at the uh, f- funeral, family members will rip an outer garment as an expression of their mourning. And for the next seven days, the family goes together into a home and they receive visitors, all the while wearing that ripped outer garment as a reminder of their sadness. The New Testament tells us about another ripped garment. When Jesus Christ was crucified, there was a a curtain hanging in the temple that separated the people from the Holy of Holies where God's presence was known to reside. And when Jesus died, the Bible tells us that that curtain was torn in two. God's people would no longer be separated from God's presence. And so, Christian, we are a people of the ripped garment, not a garment that reminds us of our sadness, but a garment ripped that reminds us of our joy and our peace with God, a ripped garment that reminds us that that Christmas has come, that Jesus was known as Emmanuel, God with us. And this good news drives us and postures us in the holiday season. So Christian, how is your heart postured? How is your heart postured? And what if, what if the good news that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures, what if that good news changed the posture of your heart? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins.